arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Later in the afternoon of October 24, 1961, police went to a house in Lincoln, Massachusetts, after a neighbor reported seeing blood leading from the house to the driveway. She made the discovery after a young girl living in the house had returned from a play date to find her mother, Joan Carolyn Risch, absent. Several unconfirmed sightings of an apparently disoriented Risch walking on nearby roads later that day were reported. Blood matching Rich's type was found smeared in the kitchen, and other evidence initially suggested to police that she had been abducted, though her two-year-old son was found safely asleep up in his room. Later, however, it was discovered that Rich had borrowed, and this is very important, several library books about murders and disappearances, including one with similarities to her case. This led to speculation that she staged her disappearance, perhaps to escape an uncomfortable domestic life. The evidence was later discovered of a troubled past which may have motivated such a scheme. Other theories suggest that Rich suffered an accident on the nearby construction site for Massachusetts Route 128. The case remains unsolved. I still remember reports in the newspaper of the disappearance of Joan Rich. Like the movies Frankenstein and the House on the Haunted Hill, as 10-year-olds, we were scared of the real reports of Joan Rich's disappearance because it made no sense. And here we are in 2021, and it still doesn't make any sense. Six feet under, as the phrase implies, is about somebody being buried, right? Of course it is. This is Hamilton, New Hampshire, a.k.a. Murder Incorporated USA. They always have room for one more murder. Let's listen to the episode. Here is Six Feet Under, a Matthias Jones mystery with murder, mayhem, and monkey business, starting right now. Six Feet Under, Chapter 1. The past never dies, surviving within the memories of those who lived it, but sometimes reappearing in the present, like a groundhog scurrying from its darkened subterranean hole. Matthias Jones carried another ceramic bowl of potato chips onto the stone-paved patio behind his house. As the cool autumn sunshine swept through the orange and yellow leaves and over his backyard, the local radio station blasted through the side speakers attached to his clapboards. WOFI, Prince William, New Hampshire. And now that roving master of driving excellence, that blasting broadcaster from the bowels of Prince William's subculture, here is Arlo Wombat. <laughs> Father Gallagher produced a sly grin that, that Matthias Jones knew very well. Jones sensed Gallagher, his brow furrowed, scrutinized the Fletcher Patriarch as if he were analyzing one of his European films. Hamilton Fletcher seemed particularly annoyed by Arlo Wombat. This is Arlo Wombat, broadcasting on the run in a rusted mobile unit through the streets of Prince William, New Hampshire. Welcome, Mayor Picotta, and all the minions at City Hall, all hacking away, uh, working. Did I say that? Well, folks, it's been a warm autumn day on the southern coast of New Hampshire. 
A cordial hidey-ho to the students and faculty at Hamilton College, our Institute of Higher Learning in the Devonshire foothills. Hamilton Fletcher, emerald green ascot at the neck and tailored white shirt, lifted his glass of scotch whiskey into the sunlight. Well, at least that bumbling blabbermouth mentioned the college. I hear Wombat has been around for some time said Gallagher, having shed his Roman collar for a blue Oxford shirt and khakis. Hallow mentions the college quite often, said the slender gray-haired dean of students, Nigel Kent. I don't care what that howling fool says about anything, shouted Hamilton Fletcher. I just can't believe he's been on the air for 30 years. He has a following, Hamilton. So does a meat wagon chased by a pack of wild dogs, he said, finishing his drink. Gallagher burst out laughing and almost spit out his drinks. So, Father, any luck in that ecumenical service with Pastor Sykes? asked Hamilton Fletcher, subtly dipping into the potato chip bowl. Well, Hamilton, the pastor is dealing with committees who are arguing with each other. They have only one sentence for committees, said Hamilton Fletcher. Tell it to somebody who cares. More scotch, sir? asked Matthias Jones at the huge barbecue grill. Read my mind, boy, said Hamilton Fletcher, handing the thick bevel glass to Jones. Those steaks will have a fine taste. I can always tell while they're cooking. Hamilton Fletcher nervously panned the backyard and stared into Jones's kitchen. His eyes bounced from side to side. Something wrong, sir? No, I'm just dealing with an issue at the plant. And that pain in the ass at City Hall and Prince William. Mayor Picarda can be obstinate, said Gallagher. No, father, not Picarda. That's shyster, Lincoln. Picarda's personal lawyer. He likes to make trouble until I cut a check and contribute to the re-election campaign. Not to talk out of turn, said Gallagher. <laughs> Talking out of turn is my modus operandi, said Hamilton Fletcher, chuckling. Apparently Lincoln can be pushy, according to some of my parishioners. Pushy? That's being gracious, father, said Hamilton Fletcher, grabbing more potato chips. He maneuvers people into a corner. Jones, wearing his blue sweater in the cool air, poured the scotch at the glass table across from the patio. Hamilton Fletcher would never accept an ice cube in his drink. Jones knew what Hamilton Fletcher would say when Jones handed the drink to the older man. Straight up, just the way I like it. And now the weather forecast with Dr. Edinger. Dr. Edinger's forecast is brought to you by Big Mama's Donuts in 15 convenient locations in the Prince William area. Huh, when is that overpaid excuse for a doctorate degree ever broadcast a realistic forecast? Asked Hamilton Fletcher. Nigel tightened the crow's peaks around his brown eyes. Didn't he graduate from the college? Did he? Asked Jones, turning the stakes. Oh, that's a story in itself, said Hamilton Fletcher. He's not even a meteorologist. Well, what is he? Asked Jones. Hamilton Fletcher paused. A bullshit artist? Jones grabbed his own beer and tilted his head back. Back in Indiana, you actually have to have a meteorologist's credentials. Does that involve lifting your index finger into the air to check the wind direction? Very funny, Father, said Jones. Sounds like that's how they judged your boats when you fought. Oh, don't be so hard on Father Gallagher, said Hamilton Fletcher. He did win the New England championship. Now I know how your Catholics keep your parishioners in line. Jones raised his fists as if he were stepping into the ring. Gallagher pointed at Jones. You know, backpedaling is as important as an aggressive move. <laughs> I know about backpedaling, said Hamilton Fletcher as the group laughed. Watch it, Nigel. More than that, when someone comes at you, 
You let him walk right into your punch. Oh, the old double whammy, said Hamilton Fletcher. You do that in business, too, Father. Jones moved the steaks onto his silver tray and positioned the tray on the glass table next to the salad. You know, old man Edinger owned the station years ago, said Hamilton Fletcher. They were from Hungary or somewhere out there, probably Transylvania. Good morning, good afternoon, hello. Edinger spoke exceptionally low with a deep voice and an undefined accent. Weather forecast for Greater Prince William and vicinity calls for threatening skies and the possibility of frost in the next month, according to the Yankee Almanac. What the hell does that mean? I should buy a share in that station and fire the blowhard, yelled Hamilton Fletcher. A very obscure forecast, said Gallagher. The weather will be getting mild and cooler with the possibility of flurries in higher elevations. What higher elevations? What higher elevations? shouted Hamilton Fletcher. And the internal flow of the jet stream will be a variable compensation for the lower gradients in the upper and lower atmosphere. Edinger spoke so low that perturbed Hamilton Fletcher shuffled closer to the speaker. I can't even hear the damn fool. Do we even know what the weather will be this weekend? I believe it's supposed to clean up, said Nigel. Arlo Wombat came back on the air. Thank you, Dr. Edinger. Thanks for nothing, said Hamilton Fletcher. Hamilton Fletcher backtracked from the speaker, but his shiny black leather shoes dislodged one of the patio pavers. He slipped so quickly that the scotch went sailing into the blue sky, and the glass flipped end over end, shattering across the pavers. His left foot collided with Jones's glass table kicking over the steak dinner, and the plates flew into the air. The ceramic plates smashed on the fieldstone patio tiles. Nigel ran over to the fallen Fletcher patriarch. Of all the ridiculous bullshit, what in God's name are you trying to do to me? Barked Hamilton Fletcher. He sat on the stone pavers, his ascot askew. His immovable eyes left the impression he might fire Jones. Can't you maintain your own backyard, Jones? I knew I shouldn't have come over here. This place is cursed. Are you all right, sir? Am I all right? Sitting here on my arse, do I look like I'm all right? Jones glanced at the loose stone along the flower garden. I'll have Smitty's landscaping take care of the yard maintenance. Smitty is a blithering idiot, said Hamilton Fletcher, brushing his arms. I think this whole patio should be rebuilt, said Nigel. All the tiles are loose. All the tiles aren't loose, Nigel, argued Jones. Nigel pursed his lips and squinted. Perhaps you need a new patio. Hamilton Fletcher gazed around the backyard. No new patio. What? asked Jones. This place has always caused me trouble, blasted Hamilton Fletcher. I'm calling Jim Salinas over at the Chateau. I'm driving to Prince William for a decent meal. I will call you later, Nigel. Whatever you say, Hamilton, said Nigel, as they marched toward the shore road gate cut into the hedge. Nigel returned after Hamilton Fletcher's cream-colored Cadillac SUV circled back to Main Street. Why is he leaving, Nigel? asked Jones, carrying the debris into the kitchen. Something else is going on here, said Gallagher, turning from the speeding SUV. Matthias, you ought to know by now that Hamilton does what Hamilton wants to do. Nigel panned the backyard. A word to the wise, if I were you, I would fix the tiles and then invite Hamilton back as a gesture of goodwill. No, I'll redo the entire patio. That may not be smart, 
said Nigel. You heard what Hamilton said. Nigel, what are you talking about? This is my house. Sometimes it's better just to fix the problem. These pavers are old and loose, said Jones as Gallagher looked on. They have been here as long as I've been the Dean of Students, 33 years. Well, la-di-da. After Hamilton Fletcher's SUV disappeared up Main Street, Bucky Driscoll's bug-like brown security vehicle buzzed near First Parish Church. There he is. You heard about Woozy's accident. I know he's lying about forcing Woozy off the road. What happened? asked Gallagher. Woozy has a dislocated shoulder and a concussion because of Bucky, Jim. I will have no assistant coach for Saturday's game. The report that was given to me, said Nigel, indicated the identity of the car that forced Mr. Williams off the road was unknown. Not according to Woozy. Back on Main Street, Bucky steered the security car into the Colonial House restaurant's fire zone. Look at that idiot, blocking the fire zone. Then Jones turned to Nigel. I talked to Woozy at PW Medical. He swears Bucky beeped his dweeb little horn at him all the way out of town. Then Bucky passes Woozy so close that Woozy was forced off the road. The car hit the fence in front of Woozy's house and slid sideways before careening into a tree. Woozy won't be coaching for another month, but he is getting better. I understand that, but Bucky denies it all. Of course he does. Now I have that spastic Froggy Finley trying to take over Woozy's job. Why would Bucky deny it with insurance picking up the slack? Asked Gallagher. Bucky's being Bucky, said Jones. Nigel stroked his chin. Froggy did coach for Lark, back when Arlo Wombat used to broadcast the games from what was Fletcher Field at the time. I wouldn't put Lark down as a reference, Nigel, said Jones. Point taken. Lark and Wombat used to be best friends, but they had a falling out years ago. Dare I ask why? As I said, you know about all the spaghetti suppers and dances that Lark held to get money for the teams. Oh yeah. Arlo would be a DJ and master of ceremonies. Right. Arlo used to live above the stationer's store, once hauling stationer's store. Now it's ABC stationery. Look, Nigel, thanks for the trip down memory lane, but Arlo Pushmobley, who owned your house at the time, as Locke's assistant. I can see that this town had its issues long before I got here, said Jones, grinning. Isn't that the truth? asked Nigel. Gallagher stepped forward. I was a rector in a church in Massachusetts. One of the parishioners called St. Bart yesterday. Those parishioners carry the past with them like it happened yesterday. Why? asked Jones. It's a game. I call it past presence. That's funny, said Nigel. Listen, Nigel, getting back to why Hamilton has always rebuffed my invitations. Ever since I arrived here and bought the house, he's refused every dinner invitation, cookout, even drinks, which is unusual for him. And then he accepts. You heard him. This place has always caused me trouble. The silver-haired Nigel gazed around the yard. I'm sure he has his reasons. Jones walked up to him. Did I say something that upset him? No, no, said Nigel, turning. It's nothing you've done, Matthias. It's just old issues. What issues? asked Jones. Nigel's face tightened and he glanced at Gallagher. Harrison Mobley and Hamilton had issues. Hamilton upset with someone? I'm shocked, Nigel. 
Nigel grinned. Jones checked out Bucky's security car before he and Nigel stepped into Jones's kitchen. I know who Mobley was. Didn't he live here? That would explain why Hamilton didn't come over here if he was one of Hamilton's enemies. Exactly. I would just have your pavers tightened and forget about tonight. Well, Hamilton couldn't wait to get over to the chateau. Nigel positioned a bar stool and sat down. Gallagher stood inside the open slider doors. Mobley was a poli-sci as well as an assistant coach, according to the record books. The girls loved him. Nigel again looked at Gallagher. You can speak in front of father. Whatever you say with Jim Gallagher stays with Jim Gallagher. Unless I make you feel uncomfortable, Nigel, said Gallagher. No, no. As I said before, Mobley was Lark's trusted second-in-command. Assistant coach under Lark Larson. That's a real resume enhancer. Coco mentioned Mobley was a fighter, Jim. Fought around New England in his 20s. Is it true he fought Froggy Finley in a 10-rounder in the old gymnasium for charity? I heard something about that, said Gallagher. Bizarre. I was there, said Nigel. Place was packed. Even people from Prince William. It was a charity event. Money going to the Fletcher Fund, you know, for scholarships. Froggy Finley? Mr. Finley was special ops in the Middle East. <laughs> On which side? asked Jones. Gallagher laughed loudly at the quip. <laughs> Locke was Froggy's trainer. Oh, God, said Jones. That's like having Laurel and Hardy in your corner. And Chick Corey was in Harrison's corner. Now both of you keep this to yourselves, and I mean it. Jones rolled his eyes. I can see where this is going. Sounds like one of those Hamilton, New Hampshire saggers, said Gallagher. Nigel gestured with his flattened hands, and his eyes grew intense. It was that summer night in the locker room of the old gym where Mobley heard Hamilton. Well... Hamilton had some kind of deal going with Mickey Snowden, the gangster from Boston. Let's just say it was not on the up and up and resulted in the science building being built and named after Snowden's mother, Maud. I've always wondered who Maud Snowden was. Kids call the building the Maud. Jones pulled up a chair. Tell me more, Nigel. Gallagher smiled and sat down at the kitchen table behind the two men. Arlo announced the fight. The tape is still around somewhere. Really? asked Jones. Mobley knocked Froggy down 17 times in the first eight rounds, said Nigel as Jones tried not to laugh. Gallagher pinched the bridge of his nose. Froggy kept pumping his fists like he was pedaling a bicycle. He repeatedly claimed he was all right. And then a KO in the ninth broke Froggy's jaw. Lark was stunned. Later, Lark said he fell in love with the cigarette girl, but that's a whole other story. Lark says Froggy was never the same. It made him crazy. That I believe. Jones paused and raised his index finger. So, Nigel, does this have anything to do with my patio? Apparently, Hamilton somehow found out later that Mobley overheard the Snowden thing. Nigel poured himself a tiny green glass of scotch and gestured to Jones. Drink, father? No, I'm all set, Nigel. A crooked deal with the mob. I wouldn't go that far, said Nigel, smacking his lips as he set down the glass. Right. Jones thought for a second. Just who told Hamilton? I have it secondhand, and I don't know how, but Hamilton found out that Mosley overheard the deal. They had a big blowout right behind this house. But not the big blow-up. Oh, the patio. 
And today Hamilton ends up on his fanny, said Jones. Now we know why he was so flustered, said Gallagher. That was 25 years ago, asked Jones. Really? Correct, said Nigel, staring out the side window as if he were back in time. Hamilton drove up in his black Lamborghini about a month before Mobley and his girlfriend left town. Jones put his hands on his hips and looked at Gallagher. Hamilton owned a Lamborghini? One of his cars, said Nigel. Dottie had the caddy and a few other cars. They expanded the garage to three bays that summer. Back then, Hamilton had dark brown hair, a little wavy, and a thicker brown mustache. This was years before Dottie's death. Hamilton skidded right onto the sidewalk in front of your house, said Nigel, pointing to the hedge by the curb. Pudgy Wilson was a mechanic up the street before he bought that station. He said Hamilton was yelling all the way from the time he got out of the car. Back then, the Colonial had green shutters. Hamilton stormed into the house. The argument shifted to the terrace. But Mobley was a boxer, said Jones. Professional boxers can get in big trouble using their fists, said Gallagher. Mobley had bushy black hair and wide shoulders, said Nigel. That night he lifted Hamilton across the house and out the front door. Wow. By now, Pudgy and old man Doors from the lumber company, Arnie's father, had edged their way down the street. Now, Hamilton was considerably more agile back then. I believe he was in his early 30s. He tripped Mobley, and Mobley fell into the bushes. I believe the quote was, You keep your big trap shut, Mobley, if you know what's good for you. Well, that's taking a chance, said Jones. He knew Mobley, like father said, would never hit him. But Mobley threw a good-sized rock at the Lamborghini and smashed the windshield. Hamilton kept ranting, according to Pudgy, that Mobley would pay for the outrage. Norris Creedon assigned his young lawyer, L.G. Bentley, to threaten damages. The assistant district attorney made some unethical remarks about Hamilton and messed up the case. Who was the assistant attorney? asked Gallagher. Herbert Lane. He had hair back then. Why am I not surprised, said Jones. Okay, I get it now. My house reminds Hamilton not only of Mobley, but of his losing money to Mobley and the rock cracking the Lamborghini's windshield. And the whole Mickey Snowden deal, said Nigel. This is what I don't get, Nigel. Why didn't Hamilton just fire Mobley? He never had to. Mobley left town after what Lark called the big blowout. Jones sat next to Nigel at the counter. You mean after the rock incident? Yes, about a month later. What happened? asked Jones. One night everyone and his brother were over here, all of them upset with Mobley. Does it really matter? He's long gone. Left town? asked Gallagher. Quickly, I might add, said Nigel. Jones pinched the bridge of his nose. Who do you recommend for repairing the patio, Nigel? Oh, my housekeeper's husband, Bud Johnson. Works alone. He's quiet and asks a reasonable price for his patio and tile work. If you could give him a call, that would be nice. Outside, tires screeched on Shore Road. Jones leaned toward the window as Bucky squeezed out of his compact security car. His brown uniform spread across his tubby stomach. He carried a green and white box of Big Mama's Donuts. Now what does he want? asked Jones as he slid off the stool and headed for the patio. Hey, Father Donahue! Gallagher, answered Gallagher. Bucky looked around. Who's he? Bucky kicked the gate open and walked toward the patio. 
Hey, Matthias, I thought I'd stop by with some Big Mama's Mega Donuts. And why is that, Bucky? Oh, I'm just in a mega mo mega mook magnanimous, asked Jones. Yeah, that's it, said Bucky as he tripped on one of the pavers. Hey, you better get those rocks on your patio fixed. Somebody's going to get hurt. You're right, Bucky. Somebody is going to get hurt. Somebody who takes chances on the road. I know, I know. I screech my brakes. I'm sorry. No, Bucky. I'm talking about running woozy off the road in front of his house. Don't know nothing about that, said Bucky, staring at the broken glass patio table. Huh, what happened here? <laughs> Wild party? <laughs> it was an accident, Bucky, said Nigel. <laughs> That's what they all say, said Bucky, raising his thumb up to his mouth as if he were drinking. I'll get to the bottom of Woozy's accident, Bucky, and we'll let the donuts fall where they may, said Jones. Nah, these donuts are fresh, he said, handing the box to Jones. Well, thanks for the donuts, but I'd rather have a confession. <laughs> You'll have to see Father Gallagher for that. <laughs> Very funny, said Jones as his cell phone rang. I thought so. <laughs> said Bucky, holding the edge of his belt under his huge stomach. Confessions are always welcome, said Gallagher. Bucky stumbled forward. This guy's got nothing to confess. Jones answered his cell phone, but stared at Bucky. You'd better examine your conscience. Hey, what the hell did I do? Asked Coco on the other end. Sorry, I was talking to Bucky about Woozy's accident, Coco. Uh-oh. I've got the skinny on that little rodent, Jonesy, said Coco. How? I gotta go now. Put me on speaker. Jones pushed the speaker button. Go ahead, Coco. Hey, Rodent. Who, me? I know you ran Williams off the road, you dimwit. Bucky hoisted his belt over his round belly. You don't know nothing, smarty pants. Ralphie towed Williams' expedition over to the Greaser's auto body. And guess what? What? This brown paint scratched into the side of William's SUV, genius. I have an alibi. I was talking with Arnie at the lumberyard, so there. Oh yeah, like Dewey's isn't the world's biggest liar. Bucky backed away, but once on the patio, he again tripped on the pavers. I gotta go now. Hey, where is that bucket brain? He's heading to the car. Quick, Jonesy, check the side of his car for the paint. Jones leaped off his stool and burst onto the patio. Hey, Bucky! Bucky yanked open the door and cranked the engine. With smoke spewing from the tailpipe, he fishtailed onto Shore Road with the driver's door still open. Someone blasted a horn. The first tire screeched and then a red pickup slid to a stop at the Main Street corner. Moron! He got away, said Jones. The passenger side was on the other side. That little road guilty as sin. I'll make a call to Winky. We'll get to the bottom of this. Look what his driving did to Williams. No kidding. The reason I called is to invite you over to the club after Saturday's game. You'll have a bye week after that and some downtime. Hollow Wombat says you'll win by three touchdowns. Coco, he's the traffic guy in WOFI. Yeah, I'll be there. Good. Some of the girls are asking for you. Jones raised his brows. Let me know what Winky finds out. I'll talk to you. Six Feet Under Chapter 2 Jones received a call from LG before practice. Word had gotten out that Jones planned to replace his patio, prompting people from the Hamilton Historical Society 
to say that putting in a new patio would ruin the historical aspect of his house. The society's lawyer, Archie Lincoln, also Picotta's counsel, hated both L.G. and George Strickland. Archie had just phoned L.G. from his car, warning of his pending arrival in Hamilton to confront Jones about violating the local zoning laws. You're going to love Archie in his shirt sleeves outside the little brick police station across from First Parish Church. A few high clouds slowly passed in the heightened blue sky. He invented the word pushy. I could think of a few more colorful phrases, said the gray-haired LG, setting down his leather briefcase on the curb. It's the law, Matthias. Your house is subject to whatever the society determines. However, I do believe they are incorrect about the patio. We'll delay it if we have to. Unfortunately, Archie Lincoln is the lawyer. He's very provocative, but volatile. Great, said Jones as the cars passed along the common on Main Street. A humongous, shiny SUV slowly approached the curb from Main Street. Ah, said LG, a visit from the Supreme Court Justice Lincoln. Strickland grinned. LG, this guy is trouble. Petty people, said Jones. What did I say? Lincoln's gig is to intimidate. Let me handle this, said LG. The SUV pulled to a stop under the brilliant red maple tree near the station entrance. The little chauffeur in a dark suit opened the rear door. A tall, handsome man with silver hair and wide shoulders stepped into the fallen leaves near the curb. He wore a tailored suit, smoked a potent cigar, and walked upright as if he were superior to the world. His Roman nose produced a chiseled profile, and his deep baritone voice paralleled his large presence. Ah, Bentley, pleasure to meet you here over in cow country. LG shook his hand as Lincoln raised his dark brows. From listening to you in court, Counselor, I'd say you're very familiar with cow droppings. Lincoln seemed taken aback. His deep-set blue eyes focused on LG. If I had your law practice, Bentley, I'd head for the North Forty. You almost did on those ethics charges, Archie, said LG, and Jones laughed out loud. <laughs> and you, Jones, said Lincoln, pointing as he stepped forward. His spicy cologne overpowered the strong cigar. How do you feel about coaching your games from a jail cell? I have a direct line to Herbert Lane. Oh, a direct connection to Hades, said LG. See here, Bentley, Strickland burted out a laugh. Ha, 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 what was that, Tin Horn? Strickland's face tightened. Listen, you overbearing political hack. How would you like to be brought up on ethics charges, Strickland? Why are you here, Archie? asked LG. You and your hicks know why I'm here. Why have you taken such a radical stance, Jones, with historic property? You will not threaten my client, Archie, said LG. The Historical Society is important to this community, said Lincoln. Are you or your wife running the Historical Society? asked Jones as Lincoln swung back toward Jones. One call to Chief Pacheco and PW and you'll be behind bars. I already have filed a motion for delay to this nonsense and a request for a hearing with Judge Hennessy, said LG. Well, how the hell did you do that? demanded Lincoln. I have people working for me, Counsel. Now go back to your cronies in Picada's tea party. You've been known for your theatrics, Bentley. Jones can't be touched, Lincoln. If you don't want to be in front of an American Bar Association hearing for such a ludicrous assertion, perhaps a counter lawsuit. 
for unattached and debatably non-historical portion of Mr. Jones's property. You're very adept with your penny-ante platitudes, Bentley. But just because Warren Hennessy is your friend, maybe if you had friends instead of hacks, you'd realize that, said LG. You can whine all you want, Archie. But I do think you have a conflict of interest in this matter. This is not penny-ante. I've studied the zoning laws and the history of the patio in question. The Historical Society Charter excludes references to an unconnected area, i.e. the patio. And furthermore, the zoning is directed to the homeowner, not the Historical Society. Lincoln swatted a cluster of leaves swirling around his head. That, sir, is underhanded and deceitful. Souls are falling into hell like leaves from the trees, said LG. Spare me your platitudes, Bentley. Not I. St. Teresa of Jesus. Ah, said Lincoln, swinging his hand through the air. Now kindly leave my client alone. He doesn't need to be harassed. Lincoln's dark eyes swung toward Strickland. You heard him, said Strickland. Get out of town. The chauffeur opened the door and Lincoln slid inside. In a few seconds, he had a drink in his hand. The driver closed the door and the SUV moved around the common onto Main Street. Get out of town, George. Lincoln lives here in Hamilton, said LG. Sound like you're at the OK Corral, George. Jones turned to LG as Strickland laughed and headed back inside the station. <laughs> LG, thank you. You really did your homework. LG paused and spoke with a slight smile. I always do. Jones did a double take when he saw Froggy Finley in a red Hamilton warm-up jacket sitting upright behind the hefty Leo Crowley in the bleachers along the practice field. The gray-haired Froggy had donned a white Hamilton baseball cap. His wide blue eyes moved from side to side when he talked. You ready for action, coach? What are you doing here, Froggy? Froggy had a wide jaw that looked as if it indeed had been busted up in the bout with Mobley years ago. Our wombat still thinks Morgan State will win. Jones zipped up his coat in the colder wind. That's not what he said, Froggy. We'll try something new, said Froggy. He told me he was your assistant, coach, said Leo. He's not my assistant anything. How many times have you pulled this stunt, Froggy? I have a reference from Coach Larson, said Froggy, taking out a crumpled piece of yellow lined paper. The shaky handwriting unnerved Jones. What do you say now, Coach? Same as before, Froggy. Go back in the hole you climbed out of. Arlo Wombat should stick with the traffic report. Jones's cell phone sounded inside his parker pocket as he started toward the practice field. He quickly answered the phone. Coach Jones. Coach, is this Coach Jones? Asked a weaker voice. He sounded as if he were inside a trash barrel. Is this Coach Jones? Yes, this is Coach Jones, said Jones as he gestured with his thumb for Froggy to get off the field. I can hardly hear you. Coach, this is Bud Johnson. I'm calling about a prospective job. It's just a small patio, Bud, 25 by 20, behind my house. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to secure the pavers or get a new patio. Bud coughed for several seconds and Jones held out the phone. <laughs> yes, Dean Kent told me I may be able to do the job if uh, my back holds out. 
Jones rolled his eyes. Well, Bud, you rest your back. I've been resting. I heard it at my great-granddaughter's birthday party with that piñata. Sorry, uh, you gotta watch out for those piñatas. I can probably do the job before winter. I have a quote. He said as Froggy began doing jumping jacks. What's One, two, quote? three, four. Three thousand four hundred and ninety-two dollars and sixteen cents. One, two, three, four. Sixteen cents. Three thousand four hundred. I've got it, bud. I'll give you a call after the game this weekend. Thanks for the call. Got any free tickets? One, two, three, four. See Leo Crawley at the gate. Tell him you spoke to me. I'll knock off another five bucks. One, two, three. Okay, bud. Thanks. Now Jones did not see Froggy across the open area. He inhaled the cool air and his phone rang again. Hey, what are you trying to do to the old man, Jonesy? Coco, he slipped on one of the patio pavers. <laughs> Glad it wasn't my backyard. I hear the old man is pretty PO'd. Good for him. Hey, don't get mad at me, Jonesy. I'm just giving you the heads up. Listen, there's more to this than meets the eye. Jones remembered Nigel's story about the Mobley argument with Hamilton Fletcher years ago. Right. You need professionals to redo that patio. No deep digging. I suppose. I'd just like to forget it. Listen, I'll get a hold of Patio LTD. They did work at the club. They're craftsmen, Jonesy. Dominic and Mario. Like the old country. You could show off the new patio to the old man. Jones still did not see Froggy. Winky took out the contract on Driscoll. I don't want Bucky killed. No one's gonna kill the rodent. <laughs> Although I could perform my contribution to humanity. Winky will shut down Driscoll's shitbox ASAP. We'll find out if the moron has white paint on the passenger side. Maybe he didn't do it. I'll bet my beamer he did it. Driscoll's trouble. What I don't get is why. Why indeed. I'll have Dominic or Mario get you a quote. I'll talk to you. Jones put away his cell and crossed the grass toward the bearded Leo. Where's Froggy, Leo? Leo shrugged his shoulders as he panned the practice field. Maybe he's gone. No such luck. Jones jogged up to the team, just finishing a lap around the practice field. All right, you hellions. Just because Morgan State is 0-3 doesn't mean you forget everything we've been practicing this week. They're bad, coach, said the lean Marty Sands. I've said this a hundred times. There's nothing worse than good teams playing badly. How do you play badly? By allowing yourself to think you have the game in the back. Nothing's in the bag, Marty. I want you guys playing like this is the championship game. Curfew tonight is 10 p.m. If you're not there when you should be, you don't play tomorrow. I don't care who you are, Marty. Yeah, I get it, coach. Jones's phone rang and he spun around. Hey, Matthias. Arnie, I'm conducting practice. Call me Monday morning. Heard about your patio. How do you know about my patio? asked Jones. Inside information. Arnie, that patio has seen better days. I'm probably going to replace it. You need to use the patio, boys. The old man Bose is a genius. And so are Slappy and Hagen, the Iron Man. Have them give me a quote. It's 25 by 20. 
Yeah, for a slight finder's fee, said Ernie. What happened to your table? It's all busted up. Ernie, if you're in my yard, then get out, or you'll be dealing with Wendell real soon. Wendell's a pushover, said Ernie as he hung up. Jones stared at the phone and shook his head. Who was that, Ernie Dewar's coach? Oh, yeah. I could hear him through your earpiece. That idiot took out my mailbox when they delivered lumber from my garage. Then he tells me the mailbox was rotten and it wasn't his fault. When it comes to Arnie, Leo, it's never his fault. Cold air occasionally gusted in bursts from the upper college buildings. Marty and Jones's other captain, hefty Rick Portman, led his team in calisthenics as Jones worried about Morgan's fullback, Coble on how he could burst down the field in under 11 seconds. But Morgan had no blocking. His line could easily topple the fullback unless he broke away downfield. You need me, shouted a gruff voice from behind. Jones momentarily closed his eyes and prayed that Froggy Finley was not standing behind him. When he turned, the large frame Froggy, wearing a red stocking cap, pushed Jones's shoulder. Looks like you could use some help. Unfortunately, with Woozy out of action, Jones did need help, especially with the defense against Coble. Okay, when they get done warming up, Froggy, you work with the defensive line. Can you do that? Piece of cake. Froggy, a couple inches taller than Jones, had big blue eyes that resembled opaque marbles. Worried about Willie Coble, aren't you? How do you know about Willie Coble? asked Jones. Research, kid, research. Don't call me kid snapped Jones. You forget I was Lark Larson's eyes and ears. Ha, so you're the one, said Jones, chuckling. What was that, coach? asked Froggy. He liked to step right into Jones's space. Are you evaluating me? No, Froggy, I'm not evaluating you. What are Willie Coble's weaknesses? Huh? How do we stop him? asked Jones, stepping back. Froggy smiled with big dimples that creased into his unshaven face. I say we use the old double shift, reverse replacement. That's one of Lark's ridiculous defenses. I remember reading about that in the Enterprise archives. Worked 100% of the time. You shift left, back, and then replace a secret team member in a slot at the last second. If I'm not mistaken, that left too many guys on the field and Lark was always getting penalized. Ah, the refs were paid off. I remember Swifty Southworth, he hated Lark. I can understand why. Jones started toward the team as Marty ran the dive and run exercises. You underestimate Lark. The man was ahead of his time. I guess his record speaks for itself, Froggy. I want them lined up in a 5-2 Oklahoma. Lark thought Bud Wilkinson from Oklahoma was a lightweight. Jones skidded to a stop. Oh yeah, Froggy? 145, 29, and 4. Three championships, 14 Big 8 championships. He got lucky. Froggy, I'm about this far, he said, holding up his index finger next to his thumb, for throwing you off the field. Oh, like I'm scared, said the older man. Line him up, Froggy, and no shenanigans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jones shook his head and jogged up to the offense, but his phone rang again. Thias Jones. A low but clear accented voice sounded within the wind gust. Jones, we're going to take care of you. Who is this? Dominic Pettuccini. 
Coco said you'd be cheap. I'm not cheap. We're the best, Paisan. Well, then get me a quote, said Jones. Nine thousand, even. That includes a concrete vault. Nine thousand dollars? Do you want it done right or not? Look, uh, Dominic. I await your response, he said as he hung up. Wait, wait. Jones wanted to call Coco about Dominic's exorbitant quote. He slipped the cell back in his parker. Then he ran over to the team and was surprised that Froggy had actually set up the 5-2 as well as the 4-3. Winning an easy game without slacking off was his big concern. His bigger concern was Froggy Finley on the field trying one of Lark's stunts. Late in the afternoon as the team filed into the gym, Jones's phone rang. He raised his brows at Leo and headed inside. Then he yawned. Jones. Matthias. Arnie, I don't need your advice. Hey, hey, hey. You always stick your nose into other people's business. Oh, yeah? You better pay attention to me, because I'm the one who saw Lady Godiva. Arnie, I don't have time for your nonsense. What a doll. What? Somebody shot Mobley. He was murdered. Arnie, you exaggerate everything. As far as I'm concerned, Mobley just left town 25 years ago. He was making whoopee with Lady Godiva right up in your house. Arnie, I really don't care to hear your stories. That was then and this is now. Jones stepped toward the locker room. I saw it with my own eyes, Matthias. Jones held the door handle. Arnie, you weren't even born then. Oh yeah, I was 12 years old. I saw it with my old man's binoculars. They were going hot and heavy. You're a peeping Tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arnie, save your sordid stories for Bucky. Goodbye. Jones tucked the phone in his pocket. Stupid idiot. What did I do, coach? Asked Marty with a towel around his waist as he rounded the lockers from the showers. Forget it, Marty, not you. We want to go into town, coach. Just be back by 10, Marty. I'm worried that everyone's taking this game too lackadaisically. Coach Finley said we should be loose and not think about what we learned in practice. What? Where is he? He said he'd be jogging back to the top of the notch and then to his condo, said Marty. Jones tilted his head. It's 11 miles round trip around that hill. Oh, well, maybe he'll miss the game tomorrow. Six Feet Under, Chapter 3 The air grew slightly cooler overnight, and fall had transformed Hamilton, New Hampshire into a colorful expanse with the bright red and yellow maples all over town. Jones gripped his cell before the game against Morgan State. Coco's voice ground into his ear. Jones, you insulted Dominic. He was at my office at the club 20 minutes ago. Insulted? Jones had arrived early with Leo Crowley to check the field at Larson Stadium. The hefty Leo had just finished lining the grass. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I took his call and was very cordial. But 9,000 is a little high, Coco. Yeah, you're cheaping out. You need that cement slab. Hamilton doesn't even want the patio repaired. The old man is very nervous about what happened 25 years ago. How do you know that, Coco? Never mind what I know. I have it on good authority. A lot went down at your house. Look, I have a game here. Chelsea, you're a bundle of nerves. I'll talk to you. Outside the window, the lanky froggy 
jogged toward the college as if he were wearing skin-diving flappers. Jones rolled his eyes as the fans entered between the aluminum bleachers lining the front gate of Larson Stadium. Morgan State's green and white team uniforms resembled swarming bugs near the far goalpost. Thinking about what Coco said on the phone, Jones's nervousness could level the playing field for an inconsequential game. Archie Lincoln, in a silver ski coat, broke away from a diminutive woman in a red coat. She had short dark hair and bright brown eyes. Jones questioned why this woman, a.k.a. his present nemesis, the president of the Historical Society, Miriam Lincoln, lingered behind her husband. Lincoln darted like a running back toward Jones. Attorney Lincoln, I didn't know you were a football fan. Lincoln formed a confusing smile that slithered along his face in opposite directions. Jones was about to be subjected to the charm approach. Lincoln's smooth delivery bothered Jones. Coach, as a matter of fact, I am a football fan and, uh, and truly am a fan of yours. Right, after your performance in front of the police station, said Jones as he held his clipboard. With fans like you, who needs enemies? Well, I think we can solve this historical thing very easily. I have people who can repair those pavers and we'll be squared away. Jones stopped. Okay, Lincoln, I've got a game here. Yes, I understand. Best of luck to you and your team and go get them. Thanks, said Jones. Jones's feelings about Lincoln hovered between annoyance and disdain. As he jogged away from Lincoln, Jones mostly could not stomach Lincoln's ability to tap dance around issues. The attorney's patronizing attitude left him nauseated. To add up to his pent-up emotions, Lark closed the door of his long, dented brown sedan. In his satin green jacket, the color of the opposing team, he beelined toward Jones. Jones headed for the clubhouse. Oh, Matthias, old boy! Jones closed his eyes and stopped. Better to get Lark's nonsense out of the way. Hello, Lark. How goes the battle? Battle? What battle? Not important. I have two things to say to you, Matthias. You're facing a very tough opponent. Lark, Morgan State is not exactly a contender this year. But you have Mr. Reliable. Who? Groggy Finley. Yeah, that we do. Woozy is listening to the game on the radio. Too bad our old Wombat isn't doing the games anymore, old boy. Arlo is a real pro. Yeah, that's why he's riding around Prince William in a van doing traffic reports. Oh, you listen to him too. One more thing. Thought you only had two things to say, Lark, said Jones. Lark removed his silver-rimmed glasses and cleaned them with his orange tie. Then he pointed at Jones with a serious face. If you put in that new patio, you'll awaken the spirits, as well as permanently destroy my reputation in this town. I don't see how it could get any worse. What was that, Matthias? I have to go, Lark. Lark grabbed Jones's arm. You don't understand. Your house is haunted. Lark, I've lived in that colonial for three years. It's not haunted. Sometimes the spirits come out before they strike, said Lark, raising his voice. I'll make a note of it, said Jones. Hamilton Fletcher, accompanied by his son Ham and his wife, as well as two grandchildren, stared at Jones from the front gate. 
Fletcher is headed for Hamilton Fletcher's box near the radio booth atop the center bleachers. Buddy Jacobs knows how to get ghosts out of a house. Yeah, sure, with a bottle of 100 proof. Jones jogged away from Lark, befuddled by the former coach, Arnie Dewars and Hamilton Fletcher would all have concerns about his patio. George Strickland adjusted his policeman's cap in the sunshine and backhanded Jones's upper arm. You know, Matthias, Butch Wilson, the old police chief, is going to condemn your house. Don't you start, George. I was just sweet-talked by Archie Lincoln, telling me how his people could fix my patio. Maybe he's trying to walk back the nonsense from the other day. I don't trust him. Chief Wilson's notes from back then say Mickey Snowden was seen entering your house on the night Harrison Mobley left town. In fact, Arnie heard a gunshot. Jones tilted his head and Strickland. At the risk of being rude, George, who cares? Butch never found a bullet or any blood. Jones pointed at the stadium. George, the game? Lark says it will be a tough one. Right, said Jones, and then he turned. Bucky Driscoll. Strickland's face dropped. What about him? Coco told me that Grease's auto body found paint on Woozy's expedition that matches Bucky's security car. I'm thinking maybe Bucky's car has the white paint from the expedition. The infamous Mr. Driscoll is in big trouble if that paint matches. I'll get Kevin Phillips and the detectives from PW. Jones gave him the thumbs up sign. Thanks, George. Good luck. As he entered the old clubhouse, Jones became concerned about Harrison Mobley and all the stories circulating about his house. And for the first time, it occurred to Jones that Professor Mobley might have been murdered 25 years ago, maybe in his own house. Vian's drum and brass reverberated around the stadium as the cheerleaders' chants filled the air. Jones studied the bulky Willie Cobble across the field. His defense had performed exactly the way he had anticipated, intercepting Coble on both sides of the line. Even the fullback's shifty move with the reverse stopped him for short yardage. A meager effort by his offense only put one touchdown on the scoreboard as the first half ended. At the far end of Larson Stadium's aluminum bleachers, Jones spotted Hamilton Fletcher pointing a pair of binoculars at him from the box. I'm impressed with that defense, Matthias, said his buddy and editor of the Enterprise, Tom McGill, at halftime as Jones came out of the clubhouse. McGill had a distinctive brown mustache and chestnut eyes. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Prince William Papers had you winning by three touchdowns. That's where Arlo Wombat got his prediction. What? Nothing, nothing. Offense has been sluggish, Tom, said Jones. I may have concentrated too much on defense. Can I quote you? Wait till the end of the game, said Jones, about to head back to the bench. One more question, Matthias. Why are you dragging up the Harrison Mobley mystery anyway? Me? Jones stopped and then marched back to McGill. I'm not dragging up anything, Tom. I'm just trying to get my patio fixed. I found an unpublished article by Jerry St. Clair. Jones winced. Bunch of people were gunning for Mobley, according to Jerry. Gunning? Jerry St. Clair? Don't get me going about Jerry St. Clair. No, no, this is well written with the facts. Well, why wasn't it a page one exclusive then, Tom? 
asked Jones, laughing as he used Jerry's oft-repeated expression. Hamilton Fletcher squelched the story. Jerry had it all on tape at his old watering hole at Swanson's Bar. I'm looking for the tape. Jerry's not returning my calls. Consider that the luckiest moment of your life, said Jones. I am well aware that Jerry's a pain. Let me know if you find the tape, Tom, said Jones. Jones took up a position in front of the bench. His simple side road theory about Mobley kept coming back. The man did not disappear. He was murdered. Less than a minute later, the second half began as Hamilton kicked off to Morgan State. His special teams were quick and hit hard, dislodging the ball that Morgan recovered. On the first play, Coble swept around the end, but his boys at the line of scrimmage brought Coble down. Jones had not ordered much passing. Getting the extra touchdown would give Hamilton a cushion going into the third quarter. Again, Hamilton quickly shut down Morgan. Strangely, three guys stopped Coble when Morgan sent him up the middle on fourth down. Hamilton took over on the Morgan 49. Jones called for a short pass in the flats, which Marty repeated all the way into the end zone on seven plays. In the middle of the fourth quarter, the score remained 16-0. But when he looked back at the field, the defense had shifted and somebody ran onside from his bench. What the hell is going on here? His cell phone rang, but he let it ring. Where's Finley? He left, called someone from the bench. What do you mean he left? Asked Jones. The referee called a five-yard penalty for too many men on the field. How stupid is that? He heard Lark's voice behind him, and then he called timeout. Jones began swinging his arms at Tony Manzetti, his defensive captain. I don't want you guys using any of these wacky alignments. The coach... Mr. Finley said you wanted to experiment because we had the lead. He gave us new play numbers. I don't care if he gave you dancing girls. No more of this. Stop it. As they ran back on the field, Jones pinned the area for Froggy. As he stepped back toward the bench, his right cheek exploded in pain and he flipped over the bench, snapping his back. A short time later, he looked upward toward the blue sky as the white-haired Dr. Bradgate adjusted his glasses and placed his hand on Jones's shoulder. Nice, are you all right? He asked in his gravelly voice. Jones placed his fingers on his cheek. I was hit by something and then my wrist. I fell on my fingers and my wrist. Somebody handed Bradgate a coal pack that he lowered onto Jones's fingers. Back okay? Back hurts, said Jones as two players helped sit him up. He heard a whistle on the field. What's going on? Penalty, coach, said Doug Kovac. Why? demanded Jones as he started to get up, but a sharp pain burrowed into his back. He bent my neck. Illegal shifts on defense. Froggy. You need to get over to my office, Matthias, for some x-rays after the game. I'm not going anywhere. A small contingent of Morgan State fans began cheering. It's a mix-up on defense, coach, said Doug. Coble just ran into the end zone with no coverage at all. Damn that froggy, exclaimed Jones as he clawed his way up the bench and stood, but the back pain made it impossible to stand. The severe tightness persisted even on the bench. Morgan State kicked off after the touchdown. Jones struggled to stand. His special teams formed a strange question mark formation. Two of his players crashed into each other and then fumbled the ball. Morgan recovered and were chased upfield, tying the game. Call timeout! 
With one minute and 16 seconds left, the team moved to the sidelines. Over here! I'm sorry, Coach, said Marty. Coach Finley, you forget Finley. And the team gathered around. Jones grit his teeth. You guys are to pass like we did in the first half. And score, said one of his players. No, you will get the field goal and win the game. That's it. Now let's go. As they headed out on the field, Jones noticed Hamilton Fletcher had left the VIP box. Jones sat on the bench and bent to the right to ease the pain. George Strickland and Franny McShane from the Colonial House moved along with the other team members. Franny handed Jones another cold pack. Put this on your lower back, coach, she said. Thanks, Franny, said Jones as he stood. He had trouble placing the cold pack around his back and Franny held it in place. Franny? Quiet, I grew up with three older brothers. George, arrest Froggy. Another 10 yards are on the Morgan 49-yard line. First down. Strickland turned to Jones. Dias, I can't arrest Froggy. I don't even see Froggy. I want to know who hit me with that football. He turned to his left. Two-yard gain, second down, said Strickland. Again, Jones stood as Franny kept the pack pressed onto his lower back. Then she did something with his chin and shoulder. Jones felt a crack, but the improvement in his back pain surprised him. Franny, where did you learn that? Night course at the college on massage and muscle tone. You know, I'm standing a lot at my job. You're a miracle lady. Yes, I know that, she said, pressing the cold pack. Thank you. Come on, Marty. It is feeling better, Franny, he said, removing the cold pack. No, we're keeping it on, she said. She's right, said Bradgate, moving up to the bench. My van is in back of the bleachers. I'm fine. 49 seconds. Damn, said Jones. The ball was pitched to Marty and threw a short pass to Oakley. Looks like we're on our own 35. Another five yards. Marty then swept around the end and was brought down on the 30-yard line with 25 seconds left in the game. Time out! Time out! yelled Jones and Marty signaled the referee. Jones, his back still a little tender, felt much better, turned to the smallest kid on the team, Aiden Evans. Okay, Aiden. I've seen you make 50-yard kicks. This is 32 yards. You just take your time and send it through the goalpost. I'll do it, coach. Jones patted him on the back and sent him onto the field. He'll do it, coach, said Franny. Jones nodded as Aiden lined up as Marty set up behind the line. The referee blew his whistle. Everything seemed to be happening in slow motion. Finally, Marty received the snap and placed the football on the grass and balanced it with his finger. Aiden ran forward, cocked his foot, and sent the ball over end over end into the autumn air. Jones felt a burgeoning sense of relief when the ball rocketed between the goalposts. Franny squeezed his wrist. You did it, coach! Aiden kicked off again, but the clock ran out. As the team ran out on the field, they hoisted Aiden into the air. Then they came toward Jones. Coach hurt his back, said Strickland with his palms in the air. Stay back, stay back. I'm okay, George. One of the campus radio guys shoved a microphone in his face. Did you think you'd win this one, Coach Jones? It's one hell of a way to win a ball game, answered Jones. Wait until I find Froggy Finley. 6 Feet Under, Chapter 4 Franny, in her white Subaru, drove Jones up the Main Street Hill. Jones held his cell phone to his ear. He had just explained to Woozy how Froggy 
hijacked the defense. Where'd you with the football? Woos, I don't have a clue, but I'm convinced that Froggy is in the middle of it. Let me know. Maybe we can share rooms together. Yeah, right. Take care, Woos. Jones raised his brows to Franny. Matthias, why would Froggy use defenses that have guys running off the field and other guys running back on the field? Because, Franny, that was part of Locke's grand strategy years ago. Oh, and that triple shift, said Franny, as she crossed Main Street toward Jones's Colonial on the Common. I think Lark completely made up that defense himself. I've never seen anything like it. We're lucky we even won today. Franny turned down Shore Road and looped back toward the Common. Jones looked to his right. In the center walk, extending through the gate of the shrubs, someone had pounded a five-foot-high post with a sign into the grass. Franny stopped. What's the matter? she asked as she rumbled onto the road shoulder. Jones opened the door. Something in my backyard. Really? Franny followed Jones up to the gate. Oh, this is ridiculous, said Jones. So much for the soft approach. Herbert Lane hates you, said Franny. No question. By the order of the district attorney, Herbert C. Lane, cease and desist action on historical dwellings. Patio area will be considered part of the original 1795 dwelling. Hamilton Historical Society. I heard Hamilton slipped on one of the field stones, said Franny. Arnie said a few other things that I discounted. I can just imagine. Jones turned toward Franny. What did he say? That you got into a fist fight with Hamilton and shoved him, she said, smiling. Jones grinned. No, I hit him with a shovel. Don't let Arnie hear that. All I want to do is tighten up the pavers, Franny. Now I have this historical society on my case. Where does Kendall Lincoln live? Cedarville Circle, I believe. You could always talk to Herbert Lane. Yeah, Herbert would love to throw me in jail for anything. I'll call Sylvia down at Town Hall about Ms. Kendall Lincoln. She knows everything about everything. I think our dear Kendall Lincoln is overreacting, said Jones. Does seem a little over the top. Want a meal at the Colonial House? I'm off duty tonight. Franny, that is the perfect selection. After the game, the packed Colonial House rocked with dozens of conversations, clinking glasses and plates, as well as the kitchen shouting out order numbers. Jones and Franny ate dinner in the rear booth. Lark Larson, with his back to Jones and his girlfriend, Flo Nightingale, were only a few booths down on the right. The Lincolns have a huge contempt on Cedarville Circle. Franny looked at the slip of paper. 22 Cedarville Circle. Thanks, Fran, said Jones, writing the address down in his notebook. You must be good not being on your feet and actually getting a meal. You have no idea like a gift from God. Then she leaned toward him. When we came in, a lot of people were upset about the fourth quarter, Coach. Don't worry, I'll have Miguel print the real story, and thanks for fixing my back. We'll see if George can find Froggy and whoever threw that ball. Arnie Dewars, his look-alike sister Evelyn, and Bucky Driscoll entered through the front door. Oh, no. Franny looked to her left. Oh, yes, I can't stand that man. Which one, Bucky or Arnie? Evelyn is no prize either, said Franny. Arnie raised his index finger and walked ahead of his sister in the pudgy bucky. Hey, Matthias! 
Arnie, heard you almost blew the game this afternoon. Didn't blow anything, Arnie. Hey, Arnie, why don't you buzz off? That's Franny. Hey, what did I say, Franny Wanny? As usual, Arnie, said Jones, you got the story wrong. Hey, look at the two leopards, said Bucky. Evelyn, a half a foot taller than Bucky, shoved him back. Don't be a wise-ass, Driscoll. Hey, hands off the merchandise, Evelyn, said Bucky. So, Hamilton Fletcher pressing charges? Yeah, he's recommending the death penalty, said Jones. By the way, Bucky, you're in big trouble. Hey, I didn't do it. You don't even know what I'm going to say, said Jones. I wasn't driving that car, he said, looking at Evelyn. Somebody stole it. Sure, said Franny. At least I'm not the one living in a house where somebody was murdered, said Bucky. Wrong again, Bucky. Mobley left town, said Jones. Oh, yeah? Where is he? Huh? Huh? Asked Bucky, gripping his belt loose. Who cares? Hey, you're just afraid because your house is haunted, said Arnie. I think Fletcher killed Mobley. On what basis do you believe that, Arnie? Asked Franny. What? Why would you say that? I was watching the house. Yeah, peeping Tom. Bucky thought that remark quite funny. You see anything kinky there, Arnie? Lady Godiva, said Arnie, as the two men laughed and elbowed each other. Oh, my God. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, said Jones, there's no real evidence that Mobley was murdered. I heard the shot right after Mickey Snowden went in the house. How old were you, Arnie? asked Franny. Twelve. You weren't even born, Franny Wanny. Could have been Mobley's girlfriend, Lady Godiva. She was up in the bedroom. Ba 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 boom. Oh yeah. Arnie, said Jones. Fletcher left and then Godiva got into a little Toyota that drove away. Jones leaned forward. You mean she drove away? No, she got in and somebody else drove her away. I told Butchie Wilson, he said I was a loudmouth little shit. Yeah, I can understand that, said Jones. And there was somebody else there. I saw somebody running down Shore Road after the shot. And then Locks 58 DeSoto turned the corner at Main Street. He ran over something and clipped the corner of Mobley's fence. Some things never change. Have a nice night, Arnie. What about me? Asked the large-nosed Evelyn. Evelyn, I'm sure you'll have a nice night. What's that supposed to mean? Asked Evelyn, cocking her fist at Jones. Come on, sis, pipe down, said Arnie, backing up. Matthias is under a lot of pressure with his job on the line. Don't say it, Matthias, said Franny. Let them skedaddle. Jones nodded. Would you mind if I called George, Franny? Jones nodded and dialed Strickland's number. Matthias, answered Strickland. George, did you happen to go through the, the old police logs? They were in the basement of Town Hall. Well, we need to meet, said Jones as he looked up. I'm at the Colonial House. I'll be right over, said Strickland. George will be right over, said Jones as Franny began laughing. Well, what's so funny, Franny Weenie? asked Jones. She pointed to her right as Strickland, still in uniform and his blue jacket, stood to Jones's left. I believe in prompt service. Jones began laughing himself. Very funny, George. Have a seat. Thank you. Coffee, Chief? Asked the blonde-haired Susie as she winked at Jones. Jones half-smiled. Yes, please, said Strickland. The report I read was on June 20th, 25 years ago. The last day anyone ever saw Harrison Mobley in town. 
We just know where he went. We could stop the rumors. Nobody knows. Just for the heck of it, I put a background check out on Mobley. That should locate him. My question is why he left town so quick and disappeared off the radar. Mary thinks he's out of the country. Jones finished his coffee as the slender Susie brought a cup to Strickland. Again, she smiled at Jones. More coffee, MJ? Matthias, sure. Any time. She's so obvious, said Franny. What about Arnie in the binoculars, George? Oh, well, Butch was ripped at Arnie for spying on the woman in Mobley's bedroom. I can't believe all this went on inside my house. Matthias, it was a long time ago. I guess old man Dewar's really let Arnie have it, said Strickland, squinting. Jones looked to his right. Is Bucky in the other section? I thought Bucky left, said Jones. It's your lucky day, George. Well, if he starts to leave, let me know. Strickland donned his reading glasses and read from his notebook. In his statement to Chief Wilson, Arnie said a well-dressed guy stepped out of a deep blue Cadillac. He walked up to the front door and pounded. Jones figured the well-dressed man was Mickey Snowden. Is this the beginning of what Lark called the big blowout? Right. Mobley let him in and they got into one heck of an argument. That's when the brown Toyota kept circling the common. I don't know if I believe the next part or if it's merely Arnie's 12-year-old imagination. Hamilton Fletcher drove up Shore Road in his Lamborghini. He pulled over onto the sidewalk and entered the house through the front door. Arnie said it sounded like one of Lark's pep rallies. All the noise and then a single gunshot broke out. Well, I'm not buying that. Only because it's Arnie. Exactly, said Strickland. But Butch said there was no evidence of a gun being fired in that house. Who came out of the house? asked Franny. You know, alive. Hamilton was still in the house when the man in the suit casually walked out the front door to his driver after the alleged shot. Doesn't mean that Mobley was murdered, said Franny, pointing both index fingers at Jones and Strickland. Exactly, Franny, said Jones, pointing back at her. Well, it gets better, and it involves Lark. Oh, boy, said Strickland, as again he put on his reading glasses. God help us. I don't even think God could figure this one out, Coach, said Franny. Mobley did help Lark coach three sports. Twenty-five years ago, Lark owned an old 58 DeSoto, said Strickland. Shortly after the Cadillac rounded the common up to Main Street, and after Mickey Snowden and Hamilton were inside the house, Lark comes barreling up Shore Road all according to Arnie. Was Lark in the house and then went to his car? Asked Jones. Arnie told me he saw someone running down Shore Road after the shot. Strickland pointed at Jones. Not in the report, but that would make sense. So Lark would know, if he was in the house, who fired the gun. Including himself, said Franny. And Hamilton Fletcher obviously knew there was a gunshot. Well, as my dad used to say, here's the obvious question. Did Butch Wilson interview Hamilton? Don't even go there. Of course. Like now, Lark's driving record was suspect. He lost control of the vehicle and sideswiped the fence and raced up Main Street. Arnie said he ran over something at the corner. A young LG Bentley was Hamilton's lawyer even back then. LG maneuvered it legally where Hamilton admitted to being at the house, but said he did not know the man in the Cadillac. Well, I'm not buying that either. Butch was livid, but Hamilton rules this town now and back then. He did claim, however, there was no shot, 
and given Arnie's tendency to exaggerate, they may not have been a shot. What a screw-up, said Jones. The big blowout. The only addendum is that Hamilton tripped over a bicycle left on the curb. That must be what Lark ran over, said Jones. Jones grabbed Strickland's wrist. Wait a minute. Why would someone leave a bike on the sidewalk? Kids do that all the time in the summer, Matthias, said Strickland. What kind of bike? Butch, like me, discounted the bike having to do with anything. Something isn't right, said Jones. That may be true. But while this is an interesting study, I don't have the resources to... Jones looked in the other room. Bucky, George, he's leaving. We'll see what Bucky has to say to an officer of the law, said Strickland as he backtracked. Lark said something to him as he passed. Oh, Matthias, said Lark as he turned. Jones closed his eyes momentarily and flipped several bills on the table. Franny, I'll be right back. I wouldn't miss this Bucky and Strickland thing. No problem, coach. Just give me the blow-by-blow. Blow. Lark grabbed Jones's wrist. I need to talk to you about Froggy's fabulous strategy this afternoon. One minute, Lark. Hello, Flo. <laughs> Jones opened the heavy wood door, only to see Bucky's mini-security car parked diagonal across Main Street. Strickland spoke into his portable radio, calling Wendell at the station. Jones smiled when he saw the flat tires and the screws. Then he called Coco. Coco answered with a crowd in the background. Hey, Jonesy, how goes it, bro? Coco, I'm outside the Colonial House. Bucky's car is broken down in the middle of Main Street. Ah, gee, that's a shame. You know, those things happen. I need to ask you a question about what happened at my house 25 years ago. Don't go there, Jonesy. We are going there. Strickland's looking into it. I think Hamilton Fletcher knows the whole thing. Hey, what difference does it make now? Asked Coco. What's the big secret, Coco? Asked Jones as Strickland checked the passenger side of Bucky's car with his flashlight. Jones moved closer. You and I have to meet with the old man. Okay, I'm for that. Jones looked down at the brown spray paint across Bucky's door and fender. I think we just nailed Bucky for that accident. Hallelujah. I knew the rodent was lying. The old man will fire his ass. That's the least of his problems. Woozy will sue him for everything he's got. Yeah, nothing from nothing leaves nothing. Strickland handcuffed Bucky. George just handcuffed Bucky and has him up against the car. No kidding. I wish I could have seen that. Snap a picture, Jonesy. No, I'm not going to snap a picture. Hey, the rodent thinks he's Jimmy Cagney. Now he can go behind bars for real. Tom McGill in his button-down shirt, tie loosened and sleeves rolled up, rushed down the sidewalk as Arnie Dewis aimed his camera at the handcuffed Bucky. Did he hit Woozy's car? asked McGill. It looks that way, Tom. I got it, Buckster! Hey, wait! What's the matter? asked Strickland. I need a picture from the side. Go ahead, Arnie, shoot it. Get in the damn cruiser, Bucky, snapped Strickland, and he pushed Bucky inside. Arnie just got a picture. McGill walked over to Arnie. Get that picture to me, Jonesy. You tell Dewis I'll send Uncle Dulio over to that lumber yard if I don't get it. Okay. Franny, holding her pocketbook, stepped out the front door as a small crowd gathered. A Coco, was Mickey Snowden in my house the night Mobley disappeared? Listen, I'll call you after I talk to the old man. Coco hung up and Jones sidestepped over to Franny. Guilty as charged? she asked. 
I don't see how Bucky gets out of this one, Fran. Jones looked to his left when McGill shouted at Arnie. I'm not paying you a hundred dollars for that picture, Arnie. Journalism means spending the big bucks, Tommy. By the way, Lark is looking for you, said Franny. Thought you'd want to know. Thanks for the warning. Hey, Arnie, if you don't get a copy of that picture to Coco, he's going to send his uncle Dulio after you. Arnie's face froze, and then he raised his dark brows. Hey, 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 I was just kidding. Email a copy to the Enterprise. It'll be on page one tomorrow morning. Matthias, I'll meet you at 9 o'clock for that Jerry St. Clair file. And George, I'll call you. Yeah, if Wendell ever shows up. Hey, the Buckster will be on page one. McGill nodded. No problem, Tommy, no problem. Everyone waited at least 15 minutes. McGill went back to the paper and Jones talked with Franny about the fourth quarter of the game. He kept looking at the Colonial House door. Talking with Locke right now is not an option. Strickland yelled into his radio microphone. Wendell! Where is he, George? asked Jones. I know he had the cruiser parked down the beach. Yeah, he's probably with Peggy Gautowski, said Franny. Strickland shook his head. Bucky complained about his rights as Wendell, lights flashing, pulled alongside of Bucky's car. Oh, nice of you to show up, Wendell. Day late and a dollar short, said Strickland. I'm locking up Doofus here. Call Ralphie's towing and get that security car behind the station. I'll call Herbert Lane's office. Well, I have to pick someone up, George. Peggy can wait, Wendell. Oh! Imagine Bucky thinking he could spray paint over the paint from Woozy's SUV. Lark, his voice boosted by a few glasses of wine, stepped onto the sidewalk. Franny pulled Jones along the parked cars toward her house. Thanks, Franny. Well, living in Hamilton, New Hampshire, Coach, somebody's got to watch over you. As for the Joan Rich disappearance, nobody seems to be discussing the significance that this woman headed to a major freeway, Route 128. Falling in a pit is a little bit absurd, in my opinion. Folks, what are freeways used for? To travel if she faked her attack after studying 25 library books on such scenarios of disappearance and then walked out to the major thoroughfare Route 128. Well, my question is where did she go? And the answer is anywhere. Jones is in trouble here in the book with Archie Lincoln, Picotta's lawyer, also the husband of the woman heading the Historical Society. Replacing the pavers on his patio would violate historic standards. Then Herbert Lane's name is on a sign pounded into the ground on Jones's property that forbids construction of a new patio. Jones has to deal with Froggy Finley, formerly Locke's assistant coach, who is vying to coach while Woozy is recovering from a car accident that Jones is convinced was caused by Bucky Driscoll. And what happened to Harrison Mobley, who disappeared 25 years ago from Hamilton, New Hampshire? And did his enemy, Hamilton Fletcher, have anything to do with it? I'm Robert P. Fitton. Join me next time for Episode 2 as Jones digs a little deeper into the past and the whereabouts of Harrison Mulder. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com 
And he is a real nifty factoid. You can listen to all my audiobooks without interruption on audible.com. Just type in Robert P. Fitton. Thank you and good night.